a basic summary of the treatments that so far seem like they're going to be pretty helpful. Um, they have anecdotally been helpful. So they've been helpful so far for a lot of the people who've tried them. They just haven't been able to test them on that many people yet because they're so new. Um, it's, it seems to be that it's, it's helpful just to learn about it and accept that that is what's happening because those of us with misophonia kind of try to fight it <laughs> for a while. So we feel crazy. We don't want to be having this reaction. And so we kind of like pretend that we're not, or like just get mad at ourselves. Like, why am I like this? Um, and, and so it's helpful to be like, you know what, this is how it works. And there's nothing I can do about that. And that's just, that's just how it is already took a lot of pressure off. And, and, you know, speaking from my experience as somebody who's gone through the treatment um, and then looking at any limiting beliefs you have about what it means um, to have those conditions. Cause one of the, like one of the um, kind of secondary effects is that you wind up really trying to avoid these sounds. And so you'll avoid a lot of situations um, or you'll endure them, but they'll be really distressing and that sound will really have your attention. It's pretty distracting. Um, it's kind of like if you were hearing nails on the chalk on the chalkboard in the background for like an entire work meeting, it would be really hard to focus. And so, um, so you're kind of learning like, okay, what are all my beliefs about what this means? Um, are those really accurate? Like, is it true that I can't sit through this experience or that experience, or I can't go after the things I want? everyone, welcome to Open Mind Night, a show that talks about everything mental health and mental illness related. I'm your host, Robin Tamanaha, licensed marriage and family therapist. Joining me on this episode is my guest, Annie Alpers. Annie is a psychologist in San Francisco, specializing in OCD and anxiety. She not only treats obsessive compulsive disorders, including OCD, body dysmorphic disorder, and body focused repetitive behaviors, but also has them herself. Similarly, she both has and treats misophonia, which is a common additional diagnosis for people with OCD. She is passionate about dis disseminating accurate information about these conditions and about neurodiversity in general to fellow professionals, people who have these conditions, their family and friends, and interested members of the general public. Yay! Hi, Annie. Hi, thank you so Hi. much for having me. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for doing this. I'm so excited. Me too. Yeah. So let's get into it. I have a lot of questions, but first, um, <clears throat> misophonia. What is that? Yeah. Um, it's a very common condition. Um, estimates are that it's like three to 20% of people. Um, and yet it's, it's not something that was, um, that's been formally recognized for very long. It's a sound sensitivity condition. So it means that certain sounds um, are experienced as very um, upsetting or irritating um, by people who have misophonia, even if they don't provoke any reaction in many other people. Interesting. How would, <clears throat> I mean, I, I know you mentioned like the experience, like what is like symptoms or how would someone know that like they might have that? Yeah. So people with misophonia often notice that they're having some strong reactions to sounds that other people don't seem to be having. Um, so one symptom of having misophonia is that you feel kind of crazy because, um, because there are certain sounds that feel really irritating to you, but you can tell that they're not that irritating to many other people. Um, it could be a wide variety of sounds. There's some really typical ones, um, like the sound of people chewing. Um, and then 
um, for me, like one of the things that I really don't like is hearing people's music when I can't control it. So when people play music in parks or drive by with music in their car, and I get way more irritated about that than other people I'm with. So I can tell like, okay, I think this is bothering me and it's not bothering you. Interesting. What leads to that? Is there like certain causes or where does it kind of come from? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out the answer to that very quickly. Um, and the only, the only thing that people have really been able to identify so far is genetics, um, as a, as a causal factor. Um, and then there's other people who've been working on like, how is this happening in the brain? Um, and so there's a, a couple of different theories going on. Um, one that I've read more about is that it's, it's kind of like heightened connectivity between areas of your brain that don't really need to be that connected. <laughs> um, so it seems that um, when certain sounds come in, and I, and I will say this also happens to certain visual inputs. So when certain sounds come in and get processed through your auditory cortex, or when certain visual inputs come in and get processed through your visual cortex, um, those sounds and, and visuals that are associated with misophonia will then trigger activity in your motor cortex where you initiate movement, where like there's really no need um, to trigger your motor cortex at that point, but it does get triggered. Um, and it seems to be activating your mirror system where you almost start like imitating those movements back that would have caused those sounds or caused those visual images. And that's probably why people experience those sounds as so intrusive um, and irritating and attention grabbing and why it doesn't seem to matter what volume they come in at, they're, they're always difficult. That is so interesting. Mm -hmm. Neuro, neuro, everything neuro is like so fascinating to me on how like everything is connected and what, how everything works. Yes. So if someone does experience this, like and say they want to work on it or like get like help for it, like what does that look like? Yeah. So people have been um, working pretty hard on that one too. Um, so there's, um, there's a few different people who worked on trying to find treatments for it. And I would say a, a basic summary of the treatments that so far seem like they're going to be pretty helpful. Um, they have anecdotally been helpful. So they've been helpful so far for a lot of the people who've tried them. They just haven't been able to test them on that many people yet because they're so new. Um, it's, it seems to be that it's, it's helpful just to learn about it and accept that that is what's happening because those of us with misophonia kind of try to fight it <laughs> for a while. So we feel crazy. We don't want to be having this reaction. And so we kind of like pretend that we're not, or like just get mad at ourselves. Like, why am I like this? Um, and, and so it's helpful to be like, you know what, this is how it works and there's nothing I can do about that. And that's just, that's just how it is already took a lot of pressure off. And then, you know, speaking from my experience as somebody who's gone through the treatment um, and then looking at any limiting beliefs you have about what it means um, to have those conditions. Because one of the, like one of the um, kind of secondary effects is that you wind up really trying to avoid these sounds. And so you'll avoid a lot of situations um, or you'll endure them, but they'll be really distressing and that sound will really have your attention. It's pretty distracting. Um, it's kind of like if you were hearing nails on the chalk on the chalkboard in the background for like an entire work meeting, it would be really hard to focus. And so, um, so you're kind of learning like, okay, what are all my beliefs about what this means? Um, are those really accurate? Like, is it true that I can't sit through this experience or that experience, or I can't go after the things I want? Um, and then the third step is deciding what you'd like to do differently. Um, so um, I have kind of a set of techniques that I, that I use now that kind of fit 
um, for me. Um, so there are some situations that I do avoid a little bit. Um, and I do give myself permission to leave some situations. Um, and then most of the time I choose to stay. Um, and then I have ways of masking the sound. Um, so sometimes adding a sound machine that covers up part of the sound um, or music playing that I, that I get to choose that covers up part of the sound or headphones um, to get me through some difficult experiences um, can be really, really helpful. Um, and even just knowing that I have my options laid out and that I'm choosing to stay or I'm choosing to leave is really helpful. Um, and then I'd say the last one that really comes into play is learning how to talk to other people about it. Because initially people usually have an idea that like other people are not going to understand this or they're going to think I'm crazy and they're not going to want to help. Um, and so people kind of stay quiet and keep it to themselves. Um, and so it's, it's usually better to learn how to talk to people who you really care about, um, about it so that they can kind of understand what's going on for you. It just helps to be understood. Um, and then sometimes you're asking for specific things to change a little bit. So there might be some accommodations that you can make so that you can sit through that work meeting and it doesn't feel like there's nails on a chalkboard going on. And that can be really useful. Yeah. Great. So it sounds like there's multiple options, like you said, as far as yeah. like a lot of different things to do. There's that, like you said, that acceptance, it sounds like kind of some acceptance piece of like, this is yes. like, not that it's right or wrong, but that it's like, it's actually, this is happening. And then there's some, it sounds like there's also some flexibility on <clears throat> being around all the sounds of the stimuli, right? Like there may be times when like you kind of, you stay and then there are times when like you may not, you know, but it's, it's not like one way or the other. It doesn't have to be that all or nothing. Like it's, it sounds like it's something that would probably be unique to the person like on kind of what it is and what it is they're staying in and what what it is that they're the situations or sounds that they're kind of leaving it sounds like that's a really good summary yeah <laughs> exactly it it's, it has to be tailored because every single person is going to have their own you know their own unique set of triggers there's a lot of overlap between people's um difficult sounds but they're not going to be exactly the same and then overlap again in like how much control you have over those sounds <laughs> but it's it's going to vary and so and then your exact reaction to it. So you are going to yeah, need to tailor it. Yeah. And I would wonder, you know, is so say um, <clears throat> someone is having, having trouble with sounds and it's like holding them back from doing something that they really enjoy or they like, or maybe something that is like, um, like work or something like that. Like, is that maybe one of those situations where part of the work is maybe leaning into sticking in, kind of staying in, in the situation, or is that also kind of just depends? That's a good question. I guess I, I would consider that to be a, a, a really helpful deciding factor in terms of whether you stay or not. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, there's, um, you know, the sound of chewing is, is pretty irritating to almost everybody with misophonia. And there's some situations where I'm like, that's not really a loss to me to not be in that situation. And then there's others, like if I was at a wedding, I want to stay. Like that's, that's not something that I feel like leaving. And so it is putting, you know, the power back in the hands of the person with misophonia to make those choices and already have ahead of time before they walk into these new situations, a sense of like, what are the options that I tend to like that tend to be good enough? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I like how you also mentioned that like support, the support from others, you know, maybe it's like loved ones, family, friends, spouses, partners, you know, yeah. um, how, how could they be helpful? Mm. Yeah. So just like people with 
misophonia tend to initially have reactions to it that aren't ultimately the reactions that they're going to choose. Um, I think that's true also for people around them. So sometimes when people with misophonia have tried to talk to people about it, um, the initial reactions they get from other people are like, you're crazy. Like you're making it up. You just like, you just want accommodations. Um, like you have sort of these like special desires and you're like making up this reaction that you're having to get them. Um, or, occasionally they imitate the sound back at them to kind of like make fun of them. Like it's, you know, like any type of like teasing or mean humor, like they think it's funny. Um, and people with misophonia don't <laughs> like that. Um, and so it's usually better if the person is, um, if they're aware that misophonia is a thing, great. Um, because then they can say like, oh, I've heard of this. And like, let me learn more about it. Now that I know that I know somebody who has it and it would be useful for me to know more. Um, so if you get a bit of reputable information, that's really powerful because then it just doesn't feel like something like odd or unusual. You just kind of like get what's going on. Um, and then if they're, they'd like to work with you to design accommodations, that's really great if both of you are working together. So if like, if you can sit down and be like, how, like, I'd love to stay at dinner with everybody. Like, how can we make dinner an environment where my misophonia is not getting, um, you know, super triggered. So I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like if this was to like a youth, like a child or a teen, it sounds like the like that social support family it was like super, super crucial then. Yes, that's yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a there's a training that I actually just found through Duke University. Had they have some trainings for therapists and um, who want to learn how to treat misophonia, and then they also have trainings for parents um, who have kids with misophonia. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely something that people have thought through so far. And then it can also be helpful. I will say too, in addition to therapists, audiologists um, can be really helpful with misophonia because they can often fit people with similar devices um, um, that people use if they have hyperacusis or tinnitus. So like you can have kind of like a, like an in-ear, like white noise um, machine or like an app through your phone um, or accommodations with teachers so that you're kind of getting the right sounds amplified in the classroom. So yeah, there's a lot of different accommodations that can work for kids. Wow. That sounds really hopeful. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, because I, you know, I can't even imagine, like this sounds super, super difficult and distracting for one, you know? Yeah. So the fact that there's like all these different options and even some like when it comes to medical devices and like different, you know, options, like that sounds, that's really, really neat. Thank yeah. you for technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really exciting. Sometimes it's super helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially for this, because I mean, I, I can't imagine like how much stress this would cause or how defeating or you know just I would wonder if people just try to like push through it and then you know when there's like so many different ways and you know so many different options and things that could be useful and helpful for this yeah yeah I mean I think you're hitting the nail on the head I think you're kind of getting into the mind of someone who's dealing with this it's, it is it initially does feel really challenging to figure out how to problem solve it and that's why people usually aren't thrilled with the methods they've come up with when they come into treatment and then there's all these improvements, which is really nice because people didn't even know about this until 20 years ago. It's like life-changing then. It sounds like once they see all the options and alternatives and everything. Yeah, it, it really can be. So, I mean, I, I personally found it really, really useful. It's just nice to have this area of life that doesn't feel stressful anymore. Yeah, yeah. Shifting gears a little. Okay. I know you have lots of experience, you know, in different things. I have some questions, you know, when it comes to like, 
Maybe we can like touch on some of them, um, like the OCD, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, and the the BFRBs. Yeah. So, question about BFR, BFRB. So, body focused, yes. repetitive behavior. Did I hit it? <laughs> I feel like that was on, like talked about a lot. So, could you just briefly kind of define what BFRBs, like what they yeah. are, what it is? Yeah. Yeah. So they're. Um, there are a set of related disorders um, that are all, you kind, of, you kind of think of all of them as like excessive body grooming um, or like excessive body um, like interaction. So, um, so really famous one is hair pulling when people pull their own hair out. Um, and then another one is excoriation disorder where people are really picking or scratching at their skin a lot. Um, people can get in other cycles like cheek biting or lip biting. Um, and then a lot of people pick at their own nails, their fingernails or their toenails. Um, yeah, to the point of, with all of these, to the point of like of really causing um, damage or spending a lot of time on this and, and really struggling with that behavior. So these are not chosen behaviors. These are not things that people feel good about doing. Um, they're things that they've, they have tried to stop many times and they're finding it very difficult. So there's that urge to just to do it. And then once they get started, it's just, it continues for a while. Yeah. 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 Is it like a, like a nervous habit or like what, like, how does it, I guess, start? Like how yeah. does that work? Yeah. Um, so that's another one where it would be great to know like exactly what leads up to it. Like what's the formula. And then the only thing that people have identified um, that feels like a, like a pretty clear one is genetics. Um, and I will say too, that this is one that you'll find in animals. So, um, there's lots of other animals that engage in over grooming that will like groom an area of themselves bald, um, or groom, like if they groom each other, will groom another um, animal bald. Um, and so we think that's the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And so, and the body, I want to touch on the body dysmorphic disorder. Cause I think there's, yeah. um, I think people may have an idea of what it means, but there are maybe a lot of like misconceptions about what exactly it is. Could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I love that question because um, this comes up a lot where um, I will say that I have body dysmorphic disorder and I treat body dysmorphic disorder. And I'd say nine times out of 10, what I hear back from people is something that isn't true of body dysmorphic disorder. Um, so I think we've really gotten this association that like body dysmorphic disorder is um, about weight, that it's part of an eating disorder. Um, and then sometimes people think that it's really common, like that everyone has it to some degree. Um, I would say that body criticism is extremely common um, and can be really severe. And so I, I don't mean to say that body dysmorphic disorder is necessarily more or less severe than somebody else's case of body criticism, but it is kind of its own thing. So it's a lot like OCD. Um, so people have obsessions and compulsions related to um, body flaws. And so um, really has to have that obsessive compulsive um, quality to it to count. Um, so if, if um, you were concerned that your skin was too pale, um, that would be a body criticism. But if you're thinking my skin is so pale that I'm worried other people won't love me or that I'm worried that people are staring at me, um, and thinking that my skin is really pale and maybe, you know, people who I've dated in the past ended the relationship because it was too pale, checking over and over how pale your skin is. So I'm just going to kind of extreme lengths to try to change it. 
um, that's more like body dysmorphic disorder. Got it. Yeah. And so, and what I also noticed when you explained that was there was um, not a focus on eating, right? Like eating disorders is also like totally separate, right? Too, in that sense, where it's mm -hmm. like, there's the, it's about the weight and the foods, but then body dysmorphic, it's like the, like you said, like it's a focusing on like a particular flaw, it sounds like, but that's just not necessarily connected to like food or anything. Yeah, um, it can connect. Um, so people can get really focused on their weight, um, but again, they'd be doing it in this kind of obsessive compulsive manner. And if it was only weight, if that's the only thing they ever did this with, then that would sound a lot like an eating disorder. And so you'd probably be having them see an eating disorder specialist instead. Yeah, yeah. And OCD, yeah, OCD. I know you you already kind of touched on the definition of um, OCD, but I always mm -hmm. found OCD like the more I had looked into it, I think people think of probably the usual one, like there's like the contamination, mm -hmm. but it's actually like a really big like umbrella term for a lot right. of different like types, and it's fairly large. <laughs> like wow. there's a lot of different types of um you know obsessions and and compulsions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things for people to know about it <laughs> is that like, um, cause that's another thing that I kind of hear back a lot of like, oh, you must wash your hands a lot. Um, or people hear of other things they've heard, like not wanting to step on sidewalk cracks or having favorite numbers or needing to line things up. Mm -hmm. Um, but OCD is an incredibly diverse <laughs> condition where it can, um, this like obsessive and compulsive loop can attach to pretty much anything a person can be afraid of. Um, so you can get into really abstract stuff. There are people with, uh, we call it existential OCD, who wonder things like, am I really alive? Or like, what happens after we die? And can get really stuck on that question. Um, so it can really attach to anything. Yeah. I would wonder, too, if there are those, some out there who not, might be living with OCD, but may not necessarily know it, because there's yeah. so many different subtypes. There was one recently that I looked into where I was like, oh, which was relationship OCD. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is so interesting. And that's like the question, do I love this person a lot? And, you know, should we be together? All these types of things. And, yeah. and, um, and I think, is it true that like, when it comes to the obsessions, it's, it kind of latches onto things that you, you may actually really value or care about? We do see that a lot. Yeah. And so that's, I think it's, it makes sense to bring that up in the context of relationship OCD um, because people can sometimes get mad at themselves. Like, why am I, why am I stuck in this loop? Um, and, and a lot of times it is something that they really care about. And so it makes sense that their attention is there. Yeah. Yeah. Anything I didn't ask about the OCD, BDD, BFRBs that you'd want to mention? Mm. Oh, I love that question. Um, <laughs> I think I'd love to talk about like some more misconceptions around them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think I was kind of thinking about like misconceptions around OCD. Like they seem to fall into, into certain buckets for me, like certain things that I see over and over. And so what I often see is that people um, minimize it or they exaggerate it um, or they try to um, come up with ideas for how to treat it that are not based on how it actually works. 
Um, so I'll just run through those quickly. <laughs> um, so, so minimizing it, um, sometimes people are like, oh yeah, but I mean, everybody has a little bit of OCD. Um, and uh, we don't really think that that's true. <laughs> there does seem to be, even though everybody has their own case of it and it's a really diverse condition, there does seem to be a bit of a category thing going on where like, oh, there's a lot of people who don't have OCD. You can, and again, I don't mean to be downplaying any other symptoms that they have. You can really worry about stuff, people, especially relationships. Um, people can spend a lot of time on that. It just might not be necessarily OCD. That's kind of its own specific pattern. Um, so you really need to have those obsessions and compulsions that are taking up a lot of time or causing a lot of distress or getting in the way of you doing the things that you care about. Um, and um, so that's the kind of common minimizing. <laughs> and then the exaggerating. I think um, sometimes people think that um, a person with OCD is like um, really extreme or that they're going to seem really different um, than people who don't have OCD as if like you'd be able to pick them out of a crowd or that really like defines who they are. It's like really central to them. Um, and I think along with that idea goes this other idea that it's like not going to be treatable, that it's just going to be this like severe impacting condition for the person's life, which um, it doesn't seem to be true. It does, it does seem to respond really, really well to treatments. And so that's why I think I have a reaction to that um, misconception in particular, because I'm like, oh, I don't want to stand in between people and getting like good treatment that really helps with symptoms that they are struggling with. Yeah. What yeah. is the, what's the treatment for OCD? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of two treatments that I guess I think of as the frontline treatments um, that work really well for most people. Um, and so that's cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD or um, acceptance and commitment therapy for OCD, either one. Um, and then um, and then there's medication. Um, and, and usually the first thing people try is a, is a pretty high dose of SSRIs, of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are really common medications that are also used for things like anxiety and depression. Um, you just have to have a bit of a high dose for it to be effective with OCD and BPD. I love acceptance and commitment therapy. That's <laughs> I use. I'm like a huge ACT therapist. So when that's when you said I got like super excited. <laughs> and, and I feel like that's one of the ones that isn't talked about a lot. Um, Cause we hear about like CBT a lot but not so much like the other kind of stuff connected or underneath it. So how, what does ACT look like with OCD? Because ACT is super helpful for so many things, especially during this pandemic. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to OCD, like how, I guess for those, if somebody that is listening or watching may not know about ACT or what it is and kind of how does, how does that work and how does it work with uh, OCD? Yeah. Well, what I often see people doing is um, using elements of CBT um, and, elements, and elements of ACT. Um, as they're working with people with um, OCD or BDD. And so I'm, I've actually never done like fully high fidelity act only um, for CBT or BDD. I just pull it in in some places. Um, and I would say the, the main way that I use it and that I, I, I see pretty much everybody using it is that you're focused on the person going after the things that they really want and living life the way they want to. Um, so almost like the treatment goal is almost like you're living um, the way you would without OCD, like you're, you're, and you're managing it. So you're putting yourself in all the situations you want to be in. You're going after all of your goals. Um, and then you're staying in situations that make you feel anxious if the anxiety is just coming from OCD, because you're not actually trying to get rid of anxiety. You're trying to go after the things you want. Yeah. Okay. This is great. So 
in act there's um there's like a few there's like well there's like the, like six different components or whatever so it sounds like right. one is um the values the yeah. best, where it's like what matters to you what's meaningful as opposed to goals goals we could check off values of every day things that bring you meaning things you actually enjoy that you could do whether or not you're having a quote-unquote good day or not um yeah. so really connecting your connecting with your values so it sounds like identifying what your values are and living you know according to your values and also decreasing um avoidance right because some I, with OCE right there's like maybe even some avoidance towards you know some some things um you know so yeah. with act there's like we're decreasing the avoidance moving towards your values and maybe even sitting with some uncertainty mm. and like right because with OCD like that or an anxiety and I think even others maybe wanting to know what to expect, you know, mm-hmm. how do I know this is going to be the right outcome or not? It's like the, it really takes you away from the, um, the present moment. Um, so, and also just when you experience a lot of distressing emotions, like it doesn't feel good. So sometimes there's avoidance towards that. So it sounds yeah. like kind of just sitting with it, kind of being yeah. with the distress. We don't know what's going to happen, but just being in that, you know, experiencing some uncertainty because sometimes that happens. Yeah. I, I think that's a great summary. That is a lot of what you're doing in the, especially in the exposure part of, of treatment, um, which is just a really common, really helpful <laughs> element of treatment for um, OCD. So people are going back into situations that they have been avoiding. Um, they're letting their feelings come up. They're not trying to um, get away from them. Um, you are working on thought diffusing. Um, so just because you're having a thought doesn't mean it's true. Um, so you're going to let thoughts flow through you the same way you let emotions do. And you're going to make decisions based on the things you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's very empowering. It sounds yeah. scary probably to some, but it's, all, but also um, it can be very, very empowering that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's both, but I think they have to go together. Yeah. 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 Have there been, I don't know if you, you know this or not. And to, I, this may be something that comes out in like research, but like this pandemic we're in what? I don't know what year it is. <laughs> what year is it? Um, it's been going on for so long, you know, and so I would wonder, you know, when it comes to OCD and you know, maybe certain like obsessions, if there's ones that have kind of um, like has shown up a lot or shown up more even like during during this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we talk about a lot. It's like, you know, OCD specialists. Um, cause we're always kind of like trying to track what's going on in our cases, but also in other people's cases and try to, you know, we always want to get better and better and make sure that we're understanding this correctly. As best I can tell from talking to people, it seems like the pandemic has changed everybody's OCD and everybody's VDD, um, but in idiosyncratic ways. So you would think that just because COVID's a big deal and that we care about it, that everybody with OCD would develop OCD around COVID not that common actually. Um, and instead what seems to be happening is that, um, I I've also seen trends where, uh, people's like some, sometimes other people, sometimes people's other, um, obsessions and compulsions get worse because they, um, they feel more like free to engage in those obsessions and compulsions. Like it's a bit liberating um, to have COVID going on. So if they already have contamination OCD, they're like, well, see, I have to wash my hands. Um, even if like, they're not that concerned about COVID. Or now they get to, and now other people don't see it that it's weird. So it's more like socially acceptable. So I can just kind of, you know, let it rip. And then when they do that, when they indulge it more, and they're like, gosh, that does not help. <laughs> so I'm like, you still have to treat it. 
That is so interesting. Does it ever happen where it kind of jumps? Like there's like one subtype and then maybe it's like worked through or, you know, worked on and then other ones spring up or does it kind of, does that, does that happen or? Yeah, that's the, the norm is that it's not, it's not content specific. So you can have, you can have a lot of obsessions and compulsions around something. Um, and then that can either, because OCD waxes and wanes over the course of the lifetime, it doesn't tend to go away on its own. Um, but people will sometimes, you know, not be concerned about something that they used to be concerned about even without treatment. Um, but it'll show up in other areas and people often have multiple areas going on at the same time. Um, so even though it's, it's kind of fun to label the areas, um, it's not super important, like what the content is. It's always the same process. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Hmm. Well, um, we are almost out of time. Um, is there anything else I didn't touch on that you'd want to bring up? We probably have like two minutes or so. So I know we talked about a lot of good things. I think it's all like really good. Yeah. All really helpful and informative. Thank you. Yeah. I, I love talking about this stuff. So this feels like really exciting just to have a platform. <laughs> um, I think maybe the last thing I'll say is how friends and family can be helpful across all of these. Um, which we did talk about a little bit before, but I guess I kind of want to make sure that I'm emphasizing that it's true for all of them, um, that it's really helpful to not jump to conclusions. Um, so people's first reaction to hearing um, about any of these conditions is um, making certain assumptions. And so if you catch yourself doing that, like you're already in a good spot. Um, and, then, and then I would take in information from reputable sources with, a, with an actual open mind, you know, like try to actually figure out what this condition is um, notice if you are having any limiting beliefs around it, um, including like, oh, this, you know, this is a disaster. This means that like this person won't be able to do the things that they really care about. Kind of catch those early and see, is that really true? Um, and then I would especially be looking at treatments, how treatments can be helpful um, because they, for all of these conditions, they, they really can be. And so it's, um, it's nice to move to that fairly quickly um, and then to be supportive in that um, as a friend or family member. So there's certain ways that, that people can participate and treatment and be useful while still letting the person do most of the work because it is their condition. Um, and so I think that attitude of kind of, you know, staying calm and learning the actual facts um, before coming to any conclusions and then just seeing how you can be helpful and continuing to learn about it over time can be really, really useful. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations on some reputable sources like websites, places that maybe the listeners or viewers can go? Yes, I do. Um, so I really like the International OCD Foundation. They're probably the um, like biggest, most famous source of information for OCD. Um, I really like the community there. I, I experience people as pretty hardworking and pretty dedicated to this. So I just, I, I like the stuff that they generate. It seems accurate and helpful. Um, and so they have a bunch of information on the website, but they also list a ton of support groups. Um, and so friends and family or people with these conditions can go on and find support groups in pretty much every state, as best I can tell, or nationwide groups, or I think some international groups. Um, and um, that's, that's a nice resource. <laughs> and then I, I don't think they have a ton about misophonia. They mention it. It's not considered to be an obsessive compulsive disorder. It's just a disorder that um, a lot of people can have, including it's especially common in people with obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, so they have a little bit of information on that, I think. But also um, one of my favorite sources for information on that is um, Duke. <laughs> they have their own misophonia program. And so 
they have a bunch of information there, including, you know, some paid trainings and some free information that I think is pretty, pretty good. Cool. Um, I'll add that in the show notes. So, you know, the listeners and viewers can, can click on it. So it's like easily um, accessible. If, um, if those listeners or viewers want to find out more about you mm. or could they go, is there like um, website or social media handles or where, where could they go for you? Yeah. Um, so the best spot is my website. Um, so it's at alperspsychotherapy.com. So A-L-P-E-R-S psychotherapy.com. Um, and people can message me. Um, and I definitely welcome people messaging me if they're looking for providers. Um, I can, yeah, I can sometimes help direct people to um, places where they can find providers in their state. Um, yeah. Okay. Are you currently taking clients for California? I am. I am. Um, so people who reach out to me in California are <laughs> looking for telehealth, I, I might be able to help myself. Um, but if they're not in California, I can still um, usually help direct people. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So for the listeners, um, it's really interesting, um, our licensure, but so if you're a resident of California, then you could see Annie, right? So we're licensed by state. Um, So definitely if you're interested in services with Annie, definitely reach out. And it also sounds like um, you'll also be super helpful with like referrals, which is very generous of you because it can be very hard actually to sometimes find a provider, especially when there's so many. And this honestly, everything we talked about, like, this is a specialty, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like even, I know for me, like when I left graduate school, like OCD was actually touched on like very little, at least in my program. And it was something I had to like actually learn on my own, like elsewhere, which is, in, I mean, not every program may not be like this, but it's it's interesting. So um, yeah. I, I would encourage if like you are a listener of you and you might be experiencing this to really see a specialist and someone who's experienced, honestly, especially since there are specific treatments for this that are helpful and they will be helpful as long as you get linked with the specialist, someone who is working with this. Okay. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> well, Annie, thank you so much. Thank you so much thank for you. doing this. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Yeah, and it was fun. So yeah. definitely, uh, definitely got to have you back. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this was informative or helpful. If you think this episode may be helpful to others that you know, be sure to share this episode with them. The resources mentioned and the contact information for today's guest are listed in the show notes. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating. If you would like to stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast and follow the podcast Instagram, Open Mind Night Pod. Also, this podcast is not psychotherapy or counseling. If you need to speak with a professional, you should find one local to you and contact them directly. If this is an emergency, please call your local emergency number or go to your nearest emergency department.